this thing's going to go well. You with me? So we know Jonah did not write this. We know that this was inserted into this story as kind of a way to capture the imagination of the people and, and make them link themselves in a way with Jonah and what he's, what he's going through. In fact, what the ancient Jews used to do when they would read the story of Jonah is when it, they came to a, a stopping point or a pause or a break in the story, in unison, they would all say, we are Jonah. And they would continue to read it together and they would stop and say, we are Jonah. And what the Psalms in general, which is what this is, the Psalms, what the Psalms in general were written for or, or, or written, yeah, written down for was to capture the imagination of the people who were reading them, who were singing them, and kind of connect them in, in, in three different ways. The Psalms, if you will, are the place where kind of God, human voice, and space intersect. And what I mean by that is the Psalms were written down. They were prayed by all the Jews. These were, this was Jesus' prayer book, the Psalms. And it was the place where the voice of Israel of old, the voice of current Israel, the ones who kind of put it all down, post-Babylon exile, the, post, uh, the voice of the new church, the voice of Jesus, all kind of intersected together. If you've ever read the Psalms, they're not, they're, not a, just a, they're not a story, right? But they're songs of lament. They're songs of repentance. They're songs of anger. Right? If you read them, they're, they're kind of all over the page. They're, they're songs of grace. They're songs of happiness. They're songs of assurance. But it basically grabs the imagination of the people who are being informed by them and connects them to the generations, Jesus included, who, who prayed these things. It connects our space. It, it, it connects us in modern day America with all the privilege we have to the Jews who at many times were without privilege, but many times were. With the Jews who used their privilege, or who I would say, just like Jonah, was privileged enough to disobey in the way that he wanted to, whenever he wanted to. With those of us who are privileged enough to disobey whenever we want to, however we want to. Connected the idea of those of us who have understood the feeling and the emotion of salvation with those who at one point felt like they were lost. And experienced God's salvation. And so the Psalms, if you will, were a way to grab a hold of the heart and the imagination of the people and connect them with what was whatever was going on. So in this case, with the story of Jonah, this psalm was the way that the Jews would use, that we would use to connect our lives, to connect their lives with the parable of Jonah. Okay? Now, to kind of get into what this what this psalm um, looks like, we have to understand what Jonah was written for and why it was written. Jonah was written to a people who felt like God had abandoned them. I don't, I don't know what Brandon has already taught here, so if I'm redundant, I'm sorry, but we'll, we'll do a little recap. Jonah was written to a group of people who at this point in history felt like God had abandoned them. Jonah is a parable. Jonah, we know historically, was a vocational prophet to the northern kingdom, the t- ten tribes of Israel. There was a southern kingdom who were only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Okay? The, Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom during the time of the Assyrian reign. And Jonah, what we know historically because of some inscription we, f- we find on some, uh, some of the temples in, 
in Assyria, in Nineveh, was some way, how he got there, we don't know, but some way was a prophet to, uh, to Nineveh and, and to his people. But if, and we find this in 2 Kings 14. If you just read a couple chapters down, 2 Kings 16, what we find out is that the northern kingdom is annihilated by Assyria. So we know at the end of Jonah, some way or somehow, the Assyrians, they repent, but not, not for the long haul. Sooner or later, the Assyrians come along and they annihilate the ten tribes. They're gone to, to, to today. They're, they're gone. And what's left is, is the bottom two. It's Benjamin and Judah. And the prophets come along and they begin to warn the southern kingdom that your fate is not that different than your brother's. I'm raising up an even more powerful empire who's going to exile you. And what we know is for 70 years, the Babylonian empire comes in, they destroy what's left of the southern kingdom, they destroy the temple, and they exile them. In the minds of the Jews, this was God's way of saying, I'm done with you. I'm turning my back. This is not happenstance, this is not just the way of war, but this is God's way of saying, I'm done, at least in their eyes. And at some point, the Babylonian empire vomits them back up on their land. To understand why this was so devastating to the life of the southern kingdom, what we have to know is that there were promises, not just suggestions, but promises made by God to Israel that he kind of let, um, that he kind of let go. For the longest time, the Jews were promised three things. Okay? Let me back up a little bit, actually. The Jews were called God's people, his chosen people. They had an election, right? It was, they, they, not like they voted. But this, they, they were given this election. They were called out from the people of the earth. And they were given a command. And this command was to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. This is what their identity was. As God's chosen people, they weren't to just enjoy their privilege because they were God's people, but they were to use their privilege. They were to use their fame, their short-lived fame. They were to use their, their riches, if you will, to bless the other nations. This is why they were called out. Now, we don't have to read long, but if you just read through the Old Testament, what we know is that for many, many years, the Jews intentionally skipped out on this. They used their privilege for a personal gain. They used their privilege to feel like nationalists. They used their privileges to ignite the pride they had, and it became a us-versus-them world. In other words, the name of God that they were portraying now was not the God who wanted to bless the nations, bless the pagans, but he was the God who was ready to curse them. Through this time, God had made three promises to Israel. In, the, in this identity, because here's what we know about identity. Identity is a very intangible unta- thing, right? It's very intangible. So God created this system, if you will, that kind of gave this tangible, tangibleness to the identity that he gave them. And they knew and they believed that as long as these tangible items were in place, as long as they were functioning, as long as they were connected, we were still God's people. In fact, there's a phrase that's continually used throughout the Old Testament. We are God's people and he is our God. We see it in Ruth. We see it through. This is a phrase that they constantly use to remind themselves. And those three things was that Israel would always have the land. The land was their assurance, was connected to that identity. As long as they had that land, that identity of them being God's people 
was connected. They would always have a Davidic king on the throne. An ancestor of David would always sit on the throne. As long as they had that, this identity was still intact. And they would always have the temple, which represented the presence of God. This is where all of Israel, the whole life of the country, focused around this. It rotated around the temple because this is where they could go to be in the presence of God. And as long as these three things were intact, they were pretty sure, no matter how they acted, that they were God's people and God was their God. Well, God raises up the Babylonian Empire. Babylon comes in with King Nebuchadnezzar. And not only does he exile them out of their country, but he destroys it all. He takes the king off the throne. He destroys the temple. And he pulls them out of their land. The way the Jews interpreted this was, God has turned his back on them. He is no longer their God. And they are no longer his people. And in fact, I believe that the majority, if not all of the Old Testament, was written very different than most of us are taught. I don't think Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the Torah. I don't think David wrote what we kind of give him credit for writing. I think they had writings, but here's what we know about the, the people of God. We know about the Jews. They were master storytellers, right? They were, they were master storytellers. And whether it's through oral tradition or whether it, was, whether it was through passing things down, writing things down, they kept this imagination alive for the longest time. But I don't believe through the two different exiles and all the wars that they won or lost that these writings were preserved perfectly. What I think was after Babylon, the great beast, which ironically, Jeremiah, when he's talking about Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, he says the great beast has swallowed us up in his belly. Same language. And when they were vomited back up onto their land, after generations of hearing and seeing that God has turned his back on us, that, that the Lord God is not the God that's advancing, but the Babylonian God, the God Marduk, the God of the storm, the God of the sea, ironically, is the God that's advancing. The Davidic kingdom is not advancing, but Nebuchadnezzar is the one advancing. And after being told this for 70 years, they begin to buy it. They begin to believe it. And what I think happened was there came together some scribes, some older scribes, psalmists, writers, and they said, we have to recapture the imagination of our people who feel like God has turned his back on them. A people who believe that we are no longer God's people. That he is no longer our God. And we have to connect them back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when we read the entire Old Testament, we project oftentimes our own lens, if you will, onto a book, a segment of books, a group of books, that never meant to be what we oftentimes project on them. It never meant to be in a perfect history book. It was never meant to be a perfect science book. What the Old Testament is, is a way to grab the imagination of a people and say, though it looks like God has turned his back on you, though it looks like he has abandoned you, though it looks like he has stepped out of acting the way you've assumed God would act, 
He is still your God. And you are still his people. And this is how I think the Old Testament came together. In fact, it's the only way I know how to make sense of it. And I think this is where Jonah fits into it. I mean, Jonah, I think, is Israel. I think Jonah is often us. What are some things so far that we have learned about? What are some things you've learned about Jonah? He's disobedient, right? We know that one. There we go. Bonus. Huh? Right there. He didn't like when evil people were forgiven. He kind of felt like he had, let me, let me phrase that a different way. He kind of felt like, because I know none of us have felt this way, so I want to detach this from us. He kind of felt like he had the corner on God's grace and mercy. Right? I was his. As God's privileged people. Okay, who, who else? How about this? I don't know if you, you've been told. He was a man of privilege. He had the calling, right? He was a prophet. But let's correlate that with Israel. Israel was a people of privilege. Out of all the people in the world, God calls them out. He was also a man of means, great means. I mean, think about it. He chartered a boat to go on a journey that would last him a year. If you were to tell me you're going to take off work for a year and go travel, I would automatically assume you had some means. In other words, Jonah had the affordability to disobey God any way he wanted to, wherever he wanted to, and still make it look clean. Never done that, right? Israel did that too, as long as they had the temple, the king, and the land. They could do whatever they wanted to do. Okay, did you hear that? He chose to make a decision about a people he didn't actually know. What else? Anything else? Anybody else? No? But he was also very aware of what God wanted him to do and how God would react even if he disobedient. In his disobedience, he was very aware of what God wanted and expected from him. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think in the whole Yeah, I agree. Okay, we can correlate that with Israel. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, right? He, he, God makes them as his image bearers to what? To bless the rest of the world. We get that in Noah. We get that in Abraham. Over and over and over, God's command to his people never changes. I am calling you out. I am electing you, not, not for your own privilege, not so you can go huddle up and do what you want to do, but I am calling you out. I am blessing you so that you will be a blessing to the rest of the world. That's never vacant from Israel's calling. They always know what God is up to, just like Jonah. Anybody else? So here's what we're going to do. I want to reread the psalm. I want to reread the psalm. And I want us to think of it from that perspective. Not just as a man drowning in a fish or in a sea swallowed by a fish. But when a people who feel like God has abandoned them read this psalm. What did they hear? Not about Jonah. Let's not take it from Jonah's perspective. We might, we'll do that in the next couple of weeks. But what is it God is saying through this psalm to his people? Does that make sense, what I'm asking? Okay, let's reread it.
Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. Then Israel prayed to the Lord. Then we prayed to the Lord. Let me, let me pause it. Let me just let me throw this. Let me do a little uh, extension here. Have you all ever, and this is a rhetorical question, you don't, you don't have to answer. Have you ever made it a habit to pray the Psalms? We're not often taught that in, in Protestantism. Right? Because we're, we're supposed to commune with God. We're supposed to come up with our own prayers. This, this is for free. This doesn't really have to do with this. Maybe it does. But I think it's funny that, that the Jews who wanted the scribes, who wanted the Jews who had been vomited back up, the, the Jews who had been exiled, the way they captured their imagination was to take them back to the Psalms, to pray them daily. The way Jesus prayed was to pray the Psalms. I would suggest that that's a discipline maybe you start. Because just like I said at the beginning, it is a way in which we connect with the people of God of old. We connect with Jesus. We connect with the word of God, right? It's the, it's the prayers that God gave us. These are prayers that God gave us. But have you ever, have you ever gone to pray and your mind is consumed with whatever, with whatever you want it to be consumed with? Have you ever gone to pray and you couldn't? Anybody? I've been through years of that. Not just every once in a while. But I cannot get my mind to go there. And I had, a, I had somebody teach me four or five years ago. When you get to those places, and don't just wait for those places, do it daily. Get a hold of the Psalms and begin to say them out loud like they are you praying them. And my first rebuttal to that was because I was, a, I was a good evangelical. I came up with my own prayers. My, my first rebuttal to that was, what, what happens when I got to the places where the people were crying out because they were oppressed? Because I'm not oppressed. He said, that's the way God takes you away from yourself and, hands, and has you stand in solidarity with those who would be crying that out. He said, every, every psalm is a way for God to get us outside of ourselves and connect us to a different people, to a different thought, and to his heart. In fact, I've only been doing this for the last five years, and I want to teach my kids to do this. My, my oldest daughter and I, we have what we call a psalm journal. We just take one of those, a, a notebook, and we write what psalm, and then we read it. And then I'll read it in the morning in my own time with God, and I'll, I'll write what I think God might be saying or what, what he might be doing to my heart. And I'll close it, and I'll go put it on her desk, and at night she'll open it up, and she'll read the psalm, and she'll just kind of told her, just write what you think God might be saying to you in that. We're just slowly going through the Psalms to do that. That's a practice I'm doing with my daughter, but I think this is a practice that God started with his people a long time ago. And I think that if we learn to pray the Psalms, if we use it as an actual prayer book, I think what you will find in a very weird way, I don't even, I say weird because I don't know how to explain it, but you are connected to a people and to a God in a way that you've never felt in prayer before. Okay? That was for free. We'll jump back here. Okay, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, from Babylon, from exile, from chaos, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep darkness, chaos, unknown, into the heart of the seas, which always represented a realm outside of God's control. And here he's saying God's the one who's done it. 
the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The one thing that had been taken away from Israel. Next slide. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The word salvation there, before I ask the question, was understood by the Jews differently than we understand it oftentimes. For us, it is the altar call, a prayer, something, something along that lines. I get to go to heaven. Salvation to the Jew was the resurrection of the Davidic king. It was God's kingdom advancing until all the world was recreated and all things became new. In my opinion, it was much grander than some prayer we pray. But salvation to them, which Jonah says is coming, was basically their identity being reconnected and reformed. So when the Jews prayed this, what did they hear about God? Non-rhetorical. That he's, that he's still there, that he's still in control. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. kind of our MO, it seems like. We continue to go back to that. Absolutely. Anybody else? What are the people seeing? What are they learning? What are they supposed to be hearing about God? He's not what? He's not a world structure. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. Not somebody else is saved, some other guy's things that are crashing in and pulling down and all of the stuff. It's from God. But so then is the Holy Temple, and so is his rescue, that it's also from God. So I think we can have that in the same way that it's all from God. 
That's good. Did you guys hear that? There's an identification that it's all from God. He says that it's God's waves who took him, that God actually sent him there, and then it's God who rescues him. Here's the interesting thing about that, is that in Babylon, which is oftentimes, okay, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, um, the, the, the reign of the empire was oftentimes, very oftentimes, related to the idea of water. Okay? If you think that and know that the whole Testament was written to this post-exilic people who came out of exile from Babylon and go back and read the Old Testament through that lens, it begins to give a different light if you start to look at all the stories and the way water is used. And it says if, if God is saying that I know you think Babylon has this. I know you think that they did something outside of my control, but they were just a tool in my hand to bring you back to me. Noah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely, they would have. In fact, do you guys do you do you know real quick? I don't want to be redundant. Do you? And this is kind of a segue. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Do you guys know uh, the, the depth of the symbolism of water in the Old Testament? Okay, uh, if you go back to Genesis, right, God separates, what's he separate first? Uh, land and water, right? Okay, it's, it was all one. And, and the way that the, the ancient people would have read that is the idea of chaos. Okay, chaos was really the place that not only controlled the gods, but the gods came out of in ancient Mesopotamian uh, mythology, especially Babylonian mythology, which is what this was written into. This is what we have to know. So they saw chaos as the thing that was most powerful was outside of anybody's control, including the gods, okay? In fact, this is where the gods came out of, was, was the chaos, was the, was the water. And, and there was this, this being, uh, happened to be a great fish, called uh, Tamat, okay, in, in Babylonian uh, mythology. And, and Tamat was, was basically, they didn't use the word god because she was above a god, but she was the one who kind of created the gods and, and ruled the gods. And the gods could not get close to her. And then all of these gods kind of get together and, and they see that she is causing great injustice. And it's funny, if you go, if you go back and read the old creation stories from Babylon, Gilgamesh and all that, it's, it's actually humorous. Um, but but they come up with this plan to, to come against Tamat. And none of the gods can, can do anything. They, they can't touch her, they can't hurt her until this great warrior comes up, warrior god named Marduk. Marduk, is the, he's, the, he's the god of the storm. When you start thinking about this stuff through the lens of, especially the story, it really brings a whole new meaning to it. And Marduk says, I'll do it. I'll destroy her. And, he, and he, so he goes to the great sea, the great chaos, and he, he calls her up and they go to battle and, um, and he, he defeats her and he, he slays her body into, he flays her body into, into four pieces and he uses that to create, to create the rest of the world. And so he takes control of the chaos, of the, of the sea. And the sea is what he uses for judgment and control. And, and not only that, but her minions, if you will, her sea creatures are under his control. And Marduk happens to be the god of Babylon. 
You with me? And so what we have just heard in this prayer is that Marduk is nothing. Chaos is nothing. They're just tools in the hand of God. He actually had to battle to mot, to reign and to get his control. And our God just speaks. He moves it wherever he wants it. It's all under his control. He doesn't even have to go to war with it. And I think what the people, I think John nailed it. I think what the people had to see is that because so oftentimes we put God in this box, Right? And we say he has to work this way. He has to do this and he has to do that. And there's no way he would work outside of this bounds or no way he would allow this to happen. He might allow this to happen because it fits in our nice little box, but no way he would allow this to happen. I think the book of Jonah speaks to the question, right? The, the whole Testament speaks to the question of, are we still God's people? But I think the book of Jonah speaks to the question of, can God still be good when he acts outside of the boxes that we've framed him in? And I think this prayer is bringing all the Jews together to say yes. Because not one time, not through Assyria, not through the Philistines, not through Babylon, were you ever outside of God's control. Not one time were you outside of his care. The gods of this world that you fear the most are nothing but pawns in his hand. And what I care for more than anything for my people is not that they are some great successful people. It's not that they live a safe life, trouble-free life. But they get to the point that the very thing they long for, that the the bread of their day is his presence. And I think it's interesting that this book starts out with Jonah running. Not, not, it doesn't say from Israel. It says from his presence. But here, in the prayer, Jonah comes to the recognition that my privilege, all the stuff I had that afforded me to disobey the way, the way I wanted to disobey. My election, my called outness. All the things that I put my trust in outside of God's presence is superficial and it stopped nothing from happening. In fact, God had to strip me of everything that I put my identity in to get me back to the point where the one thing that I longed for was his temple, was his presence. And I think when the Jews gathered together and they read this text, I think that's what they walked away with, is that God said, my biggest care for you is that you are in my presence because it's where I get the most glory and it's where you get the most good. And the Jews came together to read this text to remember that, to capture their imagination and bring it back to the presence of God. And I think when we read this text, the reason we read this text is also, if you look on a global status, we are a people who are privileged enough to disobey however we want to disobey. Some people in this world can't. They're not that privileged. We are a people, not you, your neighbors. We are a people who put our faith and our hope in very many superficial things. We allow our identity to be built on things that could crumble with an economy. 
And I think when we read texts like this, it is God saying to us, remember your salvation. Remember your joy. Remember your hope is not in anything that fits in the realm of privilege, but it is in my presence. It is in my presence that I want to draw you to as much as I can. That's what I think the text was today. Let's pray.